Hey, food eaters. Hope all is well with you. This is Mel Weinstein, host of the Food Labels Revealed podcast and the self-professed prophet of processed foods. Welcome to my monthly podcast. This is episode number 50. For those contemporary listeners, it's superfluous and redundant for me to blabber on about the current pandemic, but just in case, long after I'm dead, someone happens to tap into this audio stream lingering somewhere in the internet cloud, or whatever it's called then, here briefly is the state of affairs in the world. Consider this a digital time capsule. It's the end of April 2020. A terrible flu-type virus called COVID-19 has spread around the world after launching in China in October 2019. It's roughly 10 times more lethal than prevailing flu viruses and many times more contagious, primarily affecting senior adults and people with comorbidities or compromised immune systems. After rapidly spreading across the United States in March and concentrating in high-population cities, federal and state governments have issued stay-at-home orders for all non-essential workers. The stock market crashed. The economy tanked as commercial enterprises either slowed or came to a halt. The price of a barrel of oil turned negative due to overproduction and lack of utilization. With many jobs on hiatus or eliminated, the unemployment rate hit a level not seen since the Great Depression. The USA is fast approaching the country hardest hit by the pandemic. It is in third place behind Spain and France as the country with the most positive cases. It's in fourth place in terms of death rate at 0.014%. There are signs that the pandemic is slowing down, but it will be with us for some time. We are not out of the woods. We are hunkering down as best we can, waiting for the country to reopen so we can return to visiting with one another, eating out, going to theaters, and enjoying sports and recreational activities. But we are living in the most unprecedented time since the Spanish flu of 1918. Today's show is a little different. Usually I focus on some commercially processed food, providing analysis and commentary about its compositional and nutritional values. I get into the weeds about food additives, natural or synthetic. What are they? Where did they come from? Why are they in this food? And could they be dangerous to our health and well-being? But today I'm going in a different direction. Have you ever wondered how our modern commercial food system got so chock full of additives in the first place? Really, there's something like 10,000 chemicals approved for food use. Just think about that a second. I know I have. A lot. And how does a new food additive get approved for use? The answers to those questions are both historical and complicated, and I will attempt to tackle them here. This could be some dry stuff, but I'll try to keep it as lively as possible. Okay, food eaters, let's investigate the impacts of food additives since the beginning of the 20th century. 
Processed foods have been with us for thousands of years, maybe even tens of thousands, because food spoils. So, clever people over time have come up with various ways to preserve food, so it can be available when fresh food is not. Some of those ways have been freezing, like in the winter, cooling in cellars or caves, salting, sugaring, acidifying, pickling, using alcohol, etc., etc. These are all examples of minimal processing where the food themselves are not drastically changed. Now, along comes exponential increases in population, world-to-city movements of people, and the industrial and scientific revolutions of the 19th century. More mouths to feed, not enough fresh food, and in colder climates like northern Europe, shorter growing seasons, and a greater need for food preservation. What's a society to do? Here comes chemistry and food science to the rescue. Along comes canning as a new way to preserve food. Then other clever people discovered that certain chemicals, when added to foods, could extend their shelf lives. But not only that, food properties could be changed to improve color or taste or texture. And food scientists even started to create new foods that had never existed before. A whole lot of change was happening in the 1800s. Some of these changes were not for the better. Unfortunately, cheating and dishonesty has always gone hand in hand with new technologies. Chalk that up to the dark underbelly of human nature. So throughout recorded history, to make some extra bucks, unscrupulous merchants have adulterated commercial foods with cheaper and even toxic ingredients. That's not the stuff of this episode, but if you want to learn more about that, I suggest reading B. Wilson's book called Swindled, The Dark History of Food Fraud from Poison Candy to Counterfeit Coffee. I want to start in the late 1800s when methods of food analysis were rapidly being developed which could determine the composition of commercial foods. Here are some excerpts from a Smithsonian Magazine article. Quote, this industrialization put a new veil between consumer and product. Besides artful labels and hyped slogans, there was no way of knowing what a product really contained. Naturally, manufacturers began to exploit this ambiguity. Using spices or additives, canners could mask the taste of expired meat and other substandard ingredients. The federal government largely took a hands-off approach to food and drug safety at that time. It didn't help that manufacturers had a significant influence on Congress through aggressive lobbying. But there was resistance from within. One of the most powerful advocates of food and drug regulation was Harvey Wiley, who served as head of the USDA's Bureau of Chemistry. Wiley's official role was to support scientific developments to help farmers, but his passion was to make America's foods and medicines safe. Wiley tapped into a network of powerful support, millions of American women who feared for the safety of themselves and their families. Led by activist Alice Lakey, these women formed an unstoppable crusade of lobbyists. End quote. 
So, the public concerns about unhealthy commercial foods got elevated to a national movement by a very intelligent and engaging government scientist, Harvey Wiley, and several national women's organizations who got alarmed about dangerous foods that wound up in their homes. Dr. Wiley took the investigation a step further by purposely feeding volunteers well-known food additives of the time to discover what made the volunteers sick. Over a five-year period, the volunteers were fed meals laced with such common additives as borax, salicylic acid, and formaldehyde. A recent PBS special provides details about his experiments. It's called Poison Squad and based on a book by Deborah Bloom. Alice Lakey, along with other food health advocates, created an investigative committee to look into food composition. It was later called the Pure Food Committee, and Lakey served as the leader from 1905 to 1912. Dr. Wiley actually got to meet with President Theodore Roosevelt to share his scientific findings and to push for federal intervention concerning dangerous and toxic food additives. Unfortunately, he dissed one of Roosevelt's favorite food additives, saccharin. The corpulent Roosevelt was fond of saccharin, one of the first artificial sweeteners, which he thought helped to control his taste for sweets. Roosevelt was not very receptive to Wiley's proposal. Plus, no doubt, he was unwilling to take on food manufacturers, who by that time were a significant part of American industry. However, Another national sensation occurred to change his mind, and he could no longer risk the political consequences of stymieing federal intervention. Muckraking was a popular term in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Here is a dictionary definition of muckraking. Quote, to search for and expose real or alleged corruption, scandal, or the like, especially in politics, end quote. And this is from Wikipedia, quote, the muckrakers were reform-minded journalists in the progressive era in the United States who exposed established institutions and leaders as corrupt. They typically had large audiences in popular magazines. The modern term is investigative journalism or watchdog journalism. Investigative journalists in the U.S. are often informally called muckrakers, end quote. One such muckraker in the early 1900s was Upton Sinclair, who in 1904 went undercover into a meatpacking plant in Chicago to get material for his book, The Jungle, which was published in 1906 but initially ran as a magazine serial in the previous year. As a social activist, he wanted to expose the hard lies of immigrants, mostly from Eastern Europe, who were hired to work in the meatpacking plants in Chicago. They occupied the lowest rungs in American society and were easily exploited by the companies they worked for since their choices for making a living were very limited. In his research, Sinclair also discovered the hidden and ugly underbelly of meat production and canning and reported on the filthy, unsanitary, and contaminating conditions of the slaughterhouses and packing plants. 
When his book was published, there was a tremendous public uproar, not so much about the poor immigrant workers, but the low-quality food that consumers were buying. This national interest in food safety and consumer protection led to the two groundbreaking federal laws dealing with interstate commerce, the Meat Inspection Act of 1904 and the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. Note that the latter law linked food and drugs together, and that link would continue until the present. Also, the law became known as the Wiley Act to recognize the 20-year work of Dr. Harvey Wiley. It was hoped by Wiley and his cohorts that this new law would put an end to food adulteration and misrepresentation. The administration of this federal law was assigned to the Bureau of Chemistry, whose employees laid the groundwork for the enforcement of it. That period lasted until 1927, when a new agency was created called the Food, Drug, and Insecticide Administration, and later, in 1931, was renamed as simply the Food and Drug Administration, which we fondly know as the FDA. Also, in 1940, the FDA got moved from the United States Department of Agriculture to what later became known as the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, and today is called the Department of Health and Human Services. That was a smart move by the government since the USDA had close partnerships with food producers, and that could cause conflicts with a regulatory agency like the FDA. The 1906 law was a great first start for regulating food industries, but it was very limited in scope. For example, the net weight in bottles or cans did not have to be disclosed. In the early 1930s, President Franklin Roosevelt attempted to bolster the Pure Food and Drug Act, but with the Depression going on, the new bill was defeated through the opposition of food manufacturers and marketing firms. More attempts were made to revive the bill over the next five years, but it took a national disaster regarding a drug to get the job done. In 1937, there was a medicine called sulfanilamide that effectively treated streptococcal infections, but it was only sold in solid form, like pills. There was a demand for a more flavorful liquid elixir of sulfanilamide that could be administered more easily, particularly to sick children. The manufacturer decided to use diethylene glycol, as the liquid carrier. It turned out that diethylene glycol, now used as antifreeze, is a potent human toxin. As a consequence, over 100 people died from ingesting the elixir. Some of them were children. In the aftermath of that tragedy in 1938, Congress passed the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which required all drugs to be tested for toxicity prior to being sold to the public. Three amendments to the law were later enacted in 1954, 1958, and 1960 to cover pesticides, food additives, and color or dye additives. All these laws effectively stop manufacturers from introducing any substance into the food supply without first determining it was safe for consumers. However, there was a catch. The onus for proving the safety of a new substance was on the manufacturer, not the federal government. 
For the color additive amendment, there was an add-on proviso called the Delaney Clause, which banned any additive that was proven to cause cancer in humans or animals. Fortuitously, that proviso was later used to ban the use of the weed killer aminotriazole used in the production of cranberries, and that sparked a massive recall in 1959 of cranberries, which nearly destroyed the industry. It's interesting to note that later on in 1996, cancer-causing herbicides and pesticides were removed from the purview of the Delaney Act and handed over to another agency ran by the Environmental Protection Agency. There's more to come, but this ends the section on the history of additives. Of course, there were the later labeling laws requiring ingredients and nutrition facts, which were enacted to provide more disclosure about food contents for consumers. But I'm stopping here because I want to get to the nitty-gritty of how additives get approved. The law in 1958 was called the Food Additives Amendment. That was the first comprehensive law dealing with the many chemicals showing up in food products, particularly following World War II when the processed food industry really took off. Here's where things get tedious and somewhat confusing. Admittedly, I've read on this subject many times and still have some trouble wrapping my head around it, so please bear with me and hopefully you'll hang in there till the end because I think it's important to know how these 10,000 chemicals wind up in our food supply. Let's look at some details of the Food Additives Amendment of 1958. By the 1950s, the FDA acknowledged that there were hundreds of new chemicals being formulated as food additives, but they were in no position, either financially or staff-wise, to certify the safety of all these new substances. So, first of all, they created a list of commonly known and time-tested food additives that they called generally recognized as safe. Generally recognized as safe. We know this list as GRASS. Some people may call it GRASS. I will stick with GRASS. G-R-A-S. There were seven to 800 additives on that initial list, including such things as vinegar, vegetable oil, baking powder, spices, flavors, gums, and preservatives. Because these substances had been around for a long time, and consumers were not obviously keeling over dead or getting sickened by them, They received a free pass from the law's requirement that food additives be tested for safety before entering the food system. Okay, so that accounts for roughly 7.5% of the food additives in today's marketplace. What about the other 92.5%? By the way, in the show notes is a link to an FDA website where you can get a glimpse of many of the additives used in the USA food system. Note, there are 80 pages of information, so reserve some time for your curiosity. Since the government didn't have the means to certify the safety of the flood of new food ingredients, it was decided 
that the food additive manufacturer had the onus to prove, within reason, that their product did not injure or harm consumers. That meant that the company could use any recognized scientific means to do that, such as in-house analytical and biological testing or hiring outside firms to do the work. Do you think that that sounds a, a little like the fox being hired to guard the hen house? Sort of, but the companies were motivated to prove that their products were safe so they could convince food manufacturers to buy them for use in their formulations. The producers had skin in the game. They needed to protect their investment in the development and application of these new substances. Before exploring more details, let's use a real-world example. In episode number 38, I talked about the new meat analog, the Impossible Burger, produced by Impossible Foods, which was getting quite a bit of attention in the marketplace. In the formulation of that burger, the company used a totally new ingredient called soy leg hemoglobin. This chemical is related to hemoglobin in animals. From biology, we know that oxygenated hemoglobin turns red, as in blood. To attract meat-eating consumers, Impossible Foods used a soy-leg hemoglobin in their burger because upon cooking, the chemical breaks down to give a similar blood color to meat. Now, soy-leg hemoglobin is a natural product found in the roots of soybean plants. However, the Impossible Foods version came from a yeast which was genetically modified to preferentially produce that substance in a fermentation-like process. Pretty cool, but that begged the question. Is synthetic leg hemoglobin a new product, particularly a new color additive? Impossible Foods needed to get certification from the FDA. Note that the certification came after the Impossible Burger appeared in the marketplace. More about that later. According to the Food Amendments Act of 1958, there are three ways that a producer could get a new additive into our food system. First, the producer petitions approval for the new additive. This is the toughest route to follow, since the producer seeks pre-market approval and the FDA could set restrictions on the use of the additive. Plus, the producer still must uh, run tests to show the safety of the substance. Needless to say, that process is not only costly but very time-consuming, and most companies will avoid it. Second, if the new substance is a listed exception to the definition of a food additive, it can get approved. Typical listed exceptions include pesticides, coloring agents, new animal drugs, and dietary substances. The requirements for this route of approval are less rigorous and time-consuming. Finally, the third option for a producer is to claim that their new substance is grass generally recognized as safe. Through their own safety investigation, they show that the additive is safe under the conditions of its intended use. This is the quickest method for new additives to get approved and does not require pre-market review or approval. This gets the FDA out of the loop 
to prove that a new food additive meets the GRAS standard. The producers get a lot of leeway to determine how to demonstrate the safety of their product. After that determination is made, then there is only one step left to get FDA approval, or they could just not bother. Yes, they don't have to get approval. They can just simply go ahead and start selling the additive to food manufacturers and hope for the best. But, of course, that's a bit risky. If the company decides to request a grass determination, then the FDA reviews it for scientific legitimacy. It's highly unlikely that the FDA will conduct its own investigation of the new additive. The FDA then issues a letter to the producer stating one of three outcomes. Number one, they accept the grass determination. Number two, they say that the grass determination is insufficient. Or number three, the review is discontinued based on a request from the producer. This determination by the FDA is rather strange since it's really not an official approval and the producer is still on the hook if there is a safety issue associated with their product. Also, down the road, if an issue does arise, the FDA could degrass the new additive and remove it from the marketplace. A good example of that are trans fats, that is, partially hydrogenated oils, which for many decades were approved for use in foods until they were shown to contribute to heart disease. Too bad for you if you consume that additive over those many years. If a substance does get removed from the food system, the producer still has the option to choose the official approval process as mentioned earlier. Let's get back to leg hemoglobin. The Impossible Foods Company decided not to seek official FDA approval for that additive. Instead, they chose the grass route, performed safety testing, and sought a certification from the FDA as a coloring agent, not a food additive. I don't understand the reason, but coloring agents are considered different from food additives, according to the FDA. Here's the official convoluted definition of a food additive in governees. Quote, any substance, the intended use of which results or may reasonably be expected to result directly or indirectly in its becoming a component or otherwise affecting the characteristic of any food, and in parentheses including any substance intended for use in producing, manufacturing, packing, processing, preparing, treating, packaging, transporting, or holding food, including any source of radiation intended for any such use, and parentheses. If such substance is not grass or sanctioned prior to 1958 or otherwise excluded from the definition of food additives. End of quote. Hey, food eaters, wake up. Why the FDA thinks that coloring agents don't affect the characteristic of a food is beyond me. Anyway, back to Impossible Foods. Lucky for them, in December 2019, the FDA issued a letter stating that leg hemoglobin was certified as a coloring agent and not a food additive, so Impossible Foods was successful in their effort. And that ends the story of leg hemoglobin. 
Okay, it's time to summarize what's been covered in this episode. I hope you've been able to hang in there with me through this complex explanation of how stuff winds up in commercial foods. After a little bit of history regarding the use of food additives in America in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, we learn that change, at least at the federal level, happens slowly. When money, politics, and industrial interests are involved, legislation to improve public health usually requires some catastrophe or scandal to bring about change. The food laws of the first half of the 20th century came with a struggle, but as limited as they might have been, they did set the stage for greater consumer protection later on. Today, it's it's hard to imagine picking up a food product and not seeing a contents weight, an ingredients list, a nutritional analysis, and contact information for the manufacturer, information which was missing or incomplete just 70 years ago. Yes, we've come a long way as regards disclosure about the processed foods that we eat. However, when it comes to the approval of new ingredients, we've got a long way to go. But the legal loophole in current food laws and additive manufacturer can still put an untested chemical into our food system without getting prior approval. If that manufacturer seeks a nod from the FDA, they still can do their own safety testing without a neutral third party or the federal government certifying the results. Our government puts an awful lot of trust in food manufacturers to do the right things, but our history reveals that this trust is often overstated. Most consumers are not going to notice that they're eating foods with new ingredients that have not been approved by government laboratories. They're in the dark. Too often, substances wind up in our food that later prove toxic or unhealthy. For the government not to take the time and expense to test and approve new food additives just increases the possibility of a catastrophe. Almost all new chemicals have passed through the approval loophole rather than being subjected to the food additive petition process established by Congress in 1958. Here's an interesting example provided by publicintegrity.org in an article entitled, Why the FDA Really Doesn't Know What's in Your Food. It shows the inadequacy of the FDA's approval process. Quote, Lupine, a legume from the same family as peanuts, is often used in Mediterranean cooking. It also can be ground into flour and used in gluten-free food. In 2008, when George Weston Foods told the FDA that they'd certified the use of lupine-based flour, protein, and fiber in food as safe, regulators at the FDA disagreed. It found that people with peanut allergies could suffer life-threatening reactions to lupine ingredients. FDA officials said ingredient labels listing lupine wouldn't be enough to protect consumers. The regulators refused to agree that the ingredients were generally recognized as safe. So, George Weston Foods withdrew the notification, but other companies skipped the FDA checkpoint altogether. The Center for Public Integrity found products containing lupine on supermarket shelves. None included warnings for people who suffer from peanut allergies. Well, 
That's it, food eaters. I appreciate you taking the time to tune in. If you haven't already, I'd greatly appreciate a review, good, bad, or indifferent, at the iTunes store. You can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed and their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean, which is at www.podbean.com, or just by Googling Food Labels Revealed. Next month, I'll return with another investigation into some processed food product. Remember, in these times of infectious disease and compromised immune systems, if you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. The outro music piece is a clip from Happy Boy, composed by Kevin McLeod. Thank you.